0: Welcome to U News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is May 6 I'm Lorraine Cáceres. Here are today's headlines. With coronavirus deaths topping 70,000 here in the U.S., President Trump sending mixed signals about the fate of the coronavirus task force around the country governors at odds with one another and with their residents as experts debate the human cost of reopening and immigrants detained across the country complain about a lack of medical assistance during the pandemic this and much more today on U news recorded live in our newsroom in miami hello and welcome to you news it's wednesday may 6. i'm lorraine caceres thank you so much for joining us we begin today with sobering, a sobering look at where we stand several months into a worldwide pandemic. A staggering number of confirmed cases, more than 3.6 million humans by now have been infected by the coronavirus. Global deaths now stand at more than 258,000 lost to the battle against COVID-19. And meanwhile, here in the United States, according to Johns Hopkins University, there have been more than 1.2 million confirmed cases. To date, more than 70,000 Americans have now perished in the pandemic. Meanwhile, some stunning news out of Europe. Doctors in France say they have found a patient infected with the coronavirus as early as December 27th. The 43-year-old had not been to China and had not traveled abroad before falling ill. If verified, it means covid could have been circulating in Europe well before previously thought and at least one month before France's first official case. Identifying the first patient is crucial to understanding how the virus can spread. The man could be the earliest known COVID case in uh, France, but it's still unknown if he is actually patient zero. And back here in the U.S., the White House is apparently changing course and not winding down the coronavirus task force. This, as the New York Times reveals a bombshell report claiming that President's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, led an unofficial White House task force to procure personal protective equipment from inexperienced Trump allies over legitimate vendors. Andrea Linares has more on the growing scandal. Thank
1: you very much, everyone.
0: Just
2: a few hours ago, there were talks signaling the White House Coronavirus Task Force would possibly
1: be disbanded. Mike Pence and the task force have done a great job, but we're now looking at a little bit of a different form, and that form is safety and opening, and we'll uh, we'll have a different group probably set up for that.
2: But today, President Trump reversing course, saying the group will continue on indefinitely and shift focus to reopening and manufacturing vaccines. The news comes after two models project that relaxing stay-at-home orders in most of the country will bring a spike in coronavirus cases and deaths. The president speaking exclusively to ABC News on the issue.
3: Do you believe that's the reality we're facing, that, that lives will be lost to reopen the country?
1: It's possible there will be some because you won't be locked into an apartment or a, or a house or whatever it is. But at the same time, we're going to practice social distancing and we have to get our country back.
2: Meanwhile, the New York Times publishing a new report involving Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of President Trump. According to the report, Kushner formed a volunteer-staffed group to sort through hundreds of leads on personal protective equipment supplies and funnel the most promising ones to FEMA. But instead, the group fumbled these efforts and allegedly prioritized tips and bids from close Trump allies tracked on a worksheet called VIP Update contracts were given to certain entities to provide ventilators or other equipment but they never delivered meanwhile legitimate vendors with supplies were ignored as this unfolds one of the nation's top vaccine experts says He was fired for prioritizing science and safety over politics. Dr. Rick Bright led the biomedical research subdivision of the Department of Health and Human Services until he was suddenly removed last month and reassigned to a lower level position. In this new whistleblower complaint filed with the Office of the Special Counsel, Bright alleges he flagged the emerging threats of COVID-19 by early January 2020. And in result, encountered indifference, which then developed into hostility from HHS leadership. Dr. Bright also writing in the complaint that from 2017 until he was removed, HHS leadership pressured Dr. Bright and BARDA to ignore expert recommendations and instead to award lucrative contracts based on political connections and cronyism. The Department of Health and Human Services has responded in writing to these allegations. The department claims that Dr. Bright was transferred to NIH to work on diagnostics testing, critical to combating COVID-19, but are disappointed because he hasn't shown up for work. Bright's spokesperson pushed back, saying the doctor has not been given any details about his new assignment. In Miami, Florida, Andrea
0: Linares, U News. States around the country reporting some of their worst coronavirus days, but still moving forward with reopening their economies. This as models predict a catastrophic number of deaths by the end of June. In Texas, more businesses gearing to reopen. Governor Greg Abbott greenlighting barbershops, salons, and other personal services to restart this weekend. Despite an increase of nearly 2,000, new COVID-19 cases statewide in the last 24 hours and almost two dozen deaths. Governor Abbott saying about 75% of the 906 deaths in the state so far are people age 65 or over. And he is confident that hospitals can handle The pandemic.
4: Texas is fully capable of being able to manage the health care needs of everybody who contracts COVID 19.
0: Across much of the country, cases still on the rise as states continue to open. Illinois on Tuesday reporting its highest one day fatality count since the start of the pandemic, with 176 fatalities in the last 24 hours.
5: There's so much pressure for us to get back to that normal, but the truth is that we're still
0: in a significant war with an enemy. In Missouri, where they saw 386 new cases Monday, the largest single day increase in the state so far, officials announcing the youth baseball leagues can start this weekend, but with a number of safety guidelines. In New York, the governor says he'll be ready to begin regional reopening in about a week, but won't be pressured into reopening New York City too soon.
4: Yes, everybody's worried and everybody's anxious. That is not a substitute for logic and intelligence, right? And government is not supposed to make policy by political pressure. Let fact and data and science bring us to this point. A newly
0: unveiled model from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School analyzes scenarios of what would happen if states reopen their economies. If states continue at-home orders, the model predicts nationwide roughly 117,000 COVID-19 deaths from May 1st through the end of June, with about 18 million jobs lost. Partially reopening would result in tens of thousands additional deaths during the same time, but fewer jobs lost at 14 million. And if all states fully reopen, the model estimates a large death toll at nearly 350,000 by the end of June. The trade-off is half a million jobs lost.
3: How we value lives against economic outcomes, uh, this is, these are decisions that we need to make democratically through our elected officials.
0: While well, the governor of Florida is saying that even though Broward, Miami-Dade and Palm Beach counties are not yet quite ready, South Florida, one of the hardest hit areas in the country, will soon reopen. In New York, the state hardest hit by the coronavirus. The Democratic primary is officially back on. Tuesday, a judge ruled on this matter after former candidate Andrew Yang and other voters sued when Democrats on the state board canceled the primary due to coronavirus concerns. The board also removed the candidates who suspended their campaigns from the ballot that left former Vice President Joe Biden's name as the only one available. Board members therefore argued there was no reason to hold a primary with one candidate, but the judge ruled to reinstate the candidates once again and hold the primary on June 23rd. And in our nation's capital, word that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg underwent a procedure Tuesday, According to a statement from the court, Ginsburg had a non surgical treatment for benign gallbladder condition. On Monday, outpatient tests found the gallstone was causing an infection. The court spokesperson says Ginsburg is expected to take, take part in oral arguments via video conference from the hospital Wednesday, and she will probably be there for a couple of more days, but she is reportedly resting comfortably. Around the country and around the world, medical experts are testing out new treatments and procedures in hopes of saving more people. One coronavirus patient with two young kids has been discharged from the hospital after fighting for her life. That woman crediting an experimental treatment for her recovery. Gianni Aponte has more.
5: This was Ruth Ramirez's triumphant exit from the hospital after winning the fight against COVID-19. She is also making history for being one of the first patients to recover after being treated with umbilical cord stem cells. Ruth works in the hospital's administrative offices and she thinks she got the virus during a trip to the supermarket. She was hospitalized for a month in critical condition. I got worse. Nothing was working. I couldn't breathe on my own. I had to be intubated and then I was put on a ventilator to help me breathe. Ruth thought she wouldn't make it. And there comes a point when you say, if it's God's will for me to leave, I'll leave. But then I thought of my children. She even chose a legal guardian for her children if something were to happen. I called my sister. I gave her legal rights over my children and to make decisions over my life. When her condition worsened, doctors applied a dose of umbilical cord stem cells through her IV. We're using an experimental treatment. Stem cells appear to modify the inflammatory response on patients. We've been studying this for 12 years in order to treat people around the world. With only one umbilical cord, we can make more than one million doses. Ruth knows her case may bring hope to others. I feel humbled that they tried it on me. Ruth Ramirez wants to return to work at the hospital and now wants to attend nursing school to help save other people's life. Reported by Vilma Tarrazona, this is Gianni Aponte for U News.
0: And inmates currently held in U.S. immigration detention centers have been particularly vulnerable during the pandemic. It's a potential crisis in the making, as detainees across the country complain about a lack of medical assistance. Luis Mejid spoke with one individual about his experience after testing positive, positive while in detention.
1: If there is anything worse than being detained in a pandemic, it is also being infected. That's what happened to Javier Carrillo, locked up with other sick immigrants in a Texas detention center. Carrillo says there are about 10 infected immigrants sleeping in a single room with a single bathroom. He says a nurse visits them daily, but complains they don't get any medication to treat the symptoms. Far from Texas, in Northern California, Carrillo's sister Veronica is also worried.
5: Se van a todos Worried he can, can get
1: sicker and not get any help. Throughout the country, infections in detention centers have become a source of anxiety and fear. There has been hunger strikes and legal action demanding vulnerable immigrants to be set free. Carrillo is begging for help, but he's afraid nobody is listening. The hard life in detention is getting too much tougher with the coronavirus. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News.
0: Meanwhile, colleges and universities are grappling with big picture decisions for the fall semester from resuming in-person classes to keeping them online. This has many families and students are trying to plan for themselves. Joining me now are Edward Maloney and Joshua Kim, both professors and education researchers They looked at 15 possible scenarios for colleges in the fall. Edward, let's start with you. Several universities are leaning towards reopening in the fall, among them Brown University, American and Baylor. But that depends on increased testing and contact tracing, which the country lacks right now. What do you see as the most likely scenario as we head into the new academic year?
3: Uh, Thank you. Uh, I think the most likely scenario is that we'll have a situation where schools are going to be have have to be as flexible as possible. Uh, They'll have to think about um, options that will allow students to be back on campus in a lower density mode. And they'll have to think about options that will allow students to do some work remotely.
0: Joshua, one of the scenarios you discuss is bringing in only first year students or only graduate students. Uh, How would that work?
4: Well, we know how important the first year is for students to get ready to be successful at college, to make networks, to learn how to study in a college level work. So the idea is if you could only have the first year students, the freshmen, they could have that full campus experience where older students who are more experienced and who know how to learn online in college can continue learning in that way.
0: And there's also the option of a gap year, right?
4: Yes, we're hearing from lots of folks that Go ahead,
3: Eddie. Uh, That's right. So one possibility is that students might decide to defer for a year or defer for a semester. Uh, And and what we hope would happen if that is the case is that students and the universities and colleges that actually work together to think about how to structure that experience. So there's a meaningful relationship that's maintained between the school and the student.
0: Edward, what has been the impact of this pandemic on college students and learning, the actual process?
3: So it's, it's been incredibly challenging. Most schools had to move quickly to an emergency remote mode. Um, they weren't necessarily prepared for this. Um, and the impact on students was incredibly stressful. Many of them had to move off campus quickly as well. Uh, they had to move to homes, uh, you know, sometimes where they didn't have the same level of Internet access. They didn't have the same level of technology that they might have on campus. Um, and so one of the things that we've seen, uh, throughout this period of time is that the, the vulnerability of our students um, and as, as well as the differences between our students has become pretty clear to um, everyone across the country. Uh, we understand that um, we have to give more attention and care to the most vulnerable students um, on our campuses.
0: And Joshua, now back to you. Financially speaking, some universities have fared better than others. How has the pandemic affected enrollment? And are there in- these institutions in danger of shutting down completely?
4: Yeah, I think the answer to that question is we don't know how it's going to play out in the fall. We we really don't know how many students will not want to come to campus. And so we don't know what the impact will be on revenues. We do know that it's been incredibly expensive for schools to move to this remote learning method. It's been challenging. And every school operates on a knife's edge of, of revenues. They spend as much as they take in. So this will be very challenging across the ecosystem.
0: And lastly, Edward, what would you tell a freshman eager to start college in the fall, as we all were at some point?
3: All right. Um, You know, I would say that uh, one of the most interesting things right now, perhaps a silver silver lining uh, right now, is that schools are doing their absolute best to make that experience as engaging, as rich, as deep as possible. Um, you're getting a lot of attention uh, by your campus to try to understand your needs. Um, you're getting a lot of attention to try to put faculty in a position where they can teach in the best possible manner, regardless of the environment that we find ourselves in in the fall. And I think um, you'll find that experience to be incredibly uh, meaningful. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's something to look forward to, not something to try.
0: And one more thing before Before we go, um, what would you say about fear? Because I know a lot of people, even though they're eager to get back to their normal lives, fear is a big component. Many people are not gonna be willing to go back.
4: Yeah, colleges and universities are doing everything possible to protect the health of our students, faculty, and staff. That is the top priority. So I I would say that if you're worried, uh, that is not what I think you should be worried about.
0: Well, hopefully everything does go back to normal shortly because the college experience is amazing and everybody should have the rights and the opportunity to enjoy that. Thank you both so much for your time, Edward Maloney and Joshua Kim, co-authors of Learning, Innovation and the Future of Higher Education. More of you news after this short break. Welcome back to U News. Spain, which has been one of the hardest hit countries in Europe, debating what steps to take next. Conservatives there voted in favor of extending the nationwide lockdown the first three times. But their leader says a fourth extension doesn't make sense. Spain declared a state of alarm for the first time on March 14, but Prime Minister Sanchez is arguing the virus has not yet been defeated and says a lifting of the restrictions would be an error. Parliament is expected to vote on this proposal before the end of the day today. Meanwhile, former British Prime Minister Theresa May has criticized world leaders in an opinion piece in the Times of London. The former PM blasted their inability to forge a coherent international response to COVID-19 pandemic and insisted that polarized politics has taken hold of the response. May wrote that while researchers and scientists across the world are working together, she sees little evidence politicians are doing the same. Now to Mexico, the capital there, one of the most wasteful cities in the world, generating thousands of tons of garbage daily. But the coronavirus pandemic has pushed those numbers to the brink. And as Melissa Del Pozo explains, this has made life more risky for the essential workers picking up that waste.
6: A trash collector is one of the riskiest jobs in Mexico and the world. In times of the COVID pandemic, their jobs are heroic. Brian Garcia, 19 years old, has been working as a garbage collector since he was 15. The money he makes helps him pay for his studies. I'm still working while I see which career I study in the university. Brian's supervisor is Antonio, who has been collecting garbage for 10 years. I needed a job and while looking this was the only one I could find. Mexico City is the second most wasteful city in the world that generates the highest numbers of waste. 21 million people who live here generate 13,000 tons of garbage every day. Due to the coronavirus quarantine, sanitary waste has increased. And despite the sanitary regulations for Mexicans to separate and dispose of garbage, the authorities do not apply sanctions. It is the collectors who separate the waste with all the risks that it involves. It comes out of everything. You never know what you will find, like syringes. There are many people who do not cover them. That's why our hands get pricked. According to official data, there are 14,000 sanitary workers in the city, and another 10,000 are volunteers without employment guarantees. Tania Espinosa of the international organization, WIEGO, is conducting a campaign to get basic workers' rights. They don't have social security, access to childcare, a pension for paid vacations or other bonuses. These sanitation workers make extra money thanks to tipping and the sale of recyclable waste. We are volunteers. We live from the tips and from material that we collect, such as cardboard. Weeg also wants their trash collectors to work with mouth covers, gloves and goggles to prevent them from getting the coronavirus and other diseases. From Mexico City, Melissa del Pozo, U News.
0: Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.